Uh, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we often pray it here at Grace Point, so uh, I thought it would be good for us to work through it uh, so we can actually better explore this prayer that Jesus actually taught us to pray. And we're going to look at this over the next two months. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, let me actually pray for us, and then we'll get started. Gracious God, we do thank you we can meet this Lord's Day. We thank you for the combined church lunch that some of us were able to enjoy and the fellowship we share with uh, our friends and our brothers and our sisters in the morning church. We do pray right now as we open up the Bible that you might begin to inform us and begin to shape us as we look at the subject of prayer, the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Uh, and as that happens, Father, help us also to uh, to think very carefully about what that means for us and the way we relate to you uh, as your people. And so we do pray and ask for your blessing as we work through the Lord's Prayer uh, in the coming two months. And we pray and ask this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> very recently, uh, or this week, I read an article in Psychology Today on the urge to be heard at your core. That was the title of the article, uh, The Urge to Be Heard at Your Core. And the author, in this, the author in this article wrote, you need to express yourself to feel safe. The author writes, we are born with no survival skills except the ability to express pain. And when you withhold the urge to be heard, you feel helpless and endangered. I love that last line. Uh, when you withhold your urge to be heard, especially in your pain, you feel helpless and endangered. And it's true, there's nothing worse than having no one here or no uh, And it's true, there's nothing worse than having no one hear your cries, uh, your pain, uh, your struggles, your frustrations, your disappointments, uh, your fears. Uh, some years back, um, I was having a conversation with a psychiatrist at church uh, who was in private practice, and I asked him, what kind of people actually come to see you? Uh, you know, every time when I meet people who've got interesting professions, I want to know a bit about their profession. I say, you know, what kind of people come see you? Because often, you know, when you think of a psychiatrist, you sort of think, oh, only people with problems see the psychiatrist. And he said to me, not everyone who makes an appointment to come see me actually has issues. Uh, so the kinds of people that come see me aren't always necessarily people with problems. In fact, many of his clients were, he said, were ordinary people just wanting to improve their lives, their work, their marriage, their parenting. Effectively, he said, many of the people who come to see him were people wanting someone they could speak to, who would listen to the, uh, who would, uh, who, 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 who would listen to their cares, their worries, their fears, their struggles. Uh, so they come to see him. They talk. He listens. And so I want to say to you uh, this evening that this desire to be heard, uh, to have someone hear you the desire to have someone understand you, the desire to find someone you can pour out your heart to is a very normal one. Uh, because uh, you and I, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, uh, we were made for relationship. Uh, you were designed not to live your life as an island in isolation, but to be in relationship with the people around you, uh, to belong to a community. Uh, which is why if you're a parent, and I know that uh, two of the parents he, uh, here are away on holidays, uh, but I think of Chong uh, and Kendra at the back. If you're a parent and your kids are small, as they discover new things when they come home, and I'm sure Eva does it now. You know, she's in the backyard, she's playing, she sees a worm, she sees a butterfly. What does she do? She comes running in and she just pours her heart out. Look at this. Look at what I found. And as they grow up, 
right? Uh, things might change, but there's still a longing, a desire, a searching to have someone you can run to, to share, to pour out your heart to. Uh, if not, you know, to, you know, you as a parent, Chong Kendra at the back, to someone else. And, and, and it's interesting because even as adults, we actually long to be heard. Uh, even men, right, men who don't share, right, it doesn't mean that there isn't a longing to be heard. Uh, that it doesn't mean that there isn't a longing to be understood. Uh, the desire to find someone you can pour out your heart to uh, is a common desire. The desire to share your fears, your struggles, your weakness is still there. Did you know that there are over a thousand men shared in Australia? That's a lot of men shared. If you don't know what a men shared is, uh, it's actually a space for men to find community and friendship. There's a thousand of them all over Australia. A safe place, basically, for men to belong and for men to be heard. That's why men join a men's shed. And in many ways, for the Christian, prayer at its most basic level, at its core, is coming to speak. Uh, it's coming to be heard. Uh, it's coming to pour out your heart, running to find your refuge and your comfort and your security and your provision in nothing less than God himself who actually wants to hear you, who alone can answer the longing of your heart. So in this passage, if you have your Bibles, uh, have a look with me at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus tells us two things, right? He's going to tell us uh, how we are not to pray, and then he's going to tell us how we are to pray, okay? Uh, and if you look with me at verse 5 to verse 7, the first thing you discover is that Jesus assumes that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, Jesus assumes uh, that you will pray regularly, he assumes that. And, and this part of Jesus' teaching, which is the Sermon on the Mount, does surprise people sometimes because Jesus actually assumes not just that you would pray. Uh, in this portion of the Bible, if you read it uh, as a section, you discover Jesus assumes you'll practice three things in the Christian life. There are three disciplines, as it were, that should be the norm for the Christian. Uh, and so he assumes, firstly, that you would give to meet the needs of the poor, Right? Uh, and then he assumes that you would pray. And the third thing he assumes you would do is he would learn to fast. Three disciplines. We tend to only focus on number two. Right? So maybe we can look at the other two at some point here at, at uh, evening church. But here he assumes that we would pray. And that's why you look at verse 5 and verse 7. Jesus says, when you pray. And in verse 7 he says again, when you pray. Which means that prayer is not the optional extra in the Christian life. Okay? Hanging out with your parents might be. Some of you don't want to do that. Uh, studying, doing your studies might be, right? An optional extra. Cleaning the car and doing housework at home, that might be an optional extra. I'm not saying it should be an optional extra, but I'm just saying it's an optional extra. But prayer for the follower of Jesus is not an optional extra. Prayer is assumed that it would be part and parcel of your Christian life. And Jesus assumes that you and I would pray. So, Jesus first highlights, notice uh, we come now to uh, verse 5 and verse 8. He says there are two kinds of prayers we should avoid. Okay, So here's the first thing. This is the kind of prayer we should avoid. Here's the first one. It's there in your outlines. He firstly says we should avoid hypocritical prayers. Okay, Look at verse 5 and verse 6. And when you pray, he says, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love standing in the synagogues, that is the religious places, and on the street corners in the public places, to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. 
Now, here's the problem with the religious in Jesus' day. This is how the Pharisees prayed, right? The religious. They prayed to impress others, okay? So they would stand in the synagogues, which is the public places of worship, and on the street corners, the public places, to be noticed, seen by people, so that people could see their spirituality in their public prayers. And that's why Jesus says to them, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I read this passage, and I sort of go, you know, I can't actually imagine anyone doing this here at Grace Point, like, you know, standing in front of the Christ College entrance, the building, uh, praying out aloud so that everyone can see that you're a man or woman of prayer as they come to evening church, right? I can't imagine anyone actually doing that. So it's worth digging a bit deeper, okay? Why did the religious do this? What was the problem with the religious and their approach to public prayer? Well, prayer for them really was a way to increase their value, uh, their standing, their moral righteousness before others. That's why they prayed, notice, to be seen. Uh, People see and then they go, wow, you must be godly. Uh, Wow, you must be religious. Well, you must be good because of the way you pray. So praying for the religious was a way for the religious to validate and affirm their worth, their value, their righteousness. Now, if you think with me for a moment, that's not speaking to God, isn't it? That's prayer as a religious work to validate my godliness, as it were. That's not speaking to God. Uh, That's not looking to find your refuge and your security and your comfort in Him. That's praying to validate your religion, your self-worth, your righteousness. And so Jesus says that's actually the prayer of the hypocrite. That's being two-faced, right? You're praying, you're going through the motions of prayer, so it looks like you're praying to God, but beneath the surface, why are you praying? Well, you're only praying to validate your morality, your righteousness, your goodness. That's not prayer, that's hypocrisy, because you're not praying to God. But praying for you is a work to increase your righteousness, to increase your moral standing, not just with the people around you, but in your relationship with God. And so the hypocrite looks like they're praying to God, but they're praying to increase their moral standing before God. They're praying to secure their righteousness before God and before people around them. Okay, So that's the first one. But there's a second kind of prayer Jesus says we should avoid, and it comes to us in verse 7 and verse 8. So verse 7, verse 8, notice Jesus says, don't indulge in babbling uh, wordy prayers. See there? Babbling wordy prayers. And when you pray, he says, do not keep babbling like the pagans. You know, mantra-like prayers. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. And here's the problem with the religious in Jesus' day, the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They they prayed long, mechanical-like prayers, like the pagans, like mantra-like prayers, repetitive, long and wordy. Repetition is of no value. Because how do the pagans of the day pray? Like a mantra or a chant, they repeat themselves over and over again. They think certain words are magical, which opens the door and God will reply. The more God will hear and answer if I repeat myself over and over again. The more you repeat certain keywords, the more you say certain types of prayers, the more effective your prayers will be. But Jesus says that is the prayer of the babbler. People who think repetitive words will make your prayers more effective. Now, it's not just ineffective, if you think about it, it's actually downright annoying, isn't it? Okay? Uh, 
if you think with me for a moment, right, uh, you know, when you were small, maybe you thought like this. Uh, I know that there are parents who have children who are like this. Uh, it's like when children nag and they repeat themselves over and over and over again. Maybe you were like that. You were in the car with mom and dad, and, and you really, really wanted that toy for Christmas, and you keep asking and asking and asking on that 20-minute ride because you think somehow if I repeat it enough to mom and dad, if I say it again and again long enough, the floodgates of their generosity would actually open up and they would bless you with what you asked for. Now, you and I know it does not work because it's just downright annoying. It doesn't open the floodgates of their generosity because it soon washes over them and the floodgates do open as a parent and it's not generosity that comes out, right? But people pray like that, babbling prayers. They think that God is pleased. Jesus says God is not pleased because the the bulk or the quantity uh, of your prayers has no special benefit. Why? Look at verse 8. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the assumption is the reason why the babbler prays and goes on and on and on, because he thinks, or she thinks, God doesn't know. Well, here's the thing. Don't think God doesn't know your needs. The babbler goes on and on because they think God doesn't know. So he needs to be reminded. He needs to be woken up. But your father knows what you need even before you have come to him in prayer. God, your Father, knows what you need even before you have asked Him, before you have brought anything before Him. Because nothing in your life is hidden from Him. So why pray? Not because God is ignorant or because He's asleep, needs to be woken up. Not because He needs to be badgered before He answers. No, God does not need reminder notices like you and I. You know, on our phones, those reminder notices. No, He calls us to pray because he wants us to learn to depend on him, to find our refuge in him, to find our comfort and our security and our help in him. That's what God wants. Because looking to him reveals something of your heart. Prayer reveals your heart. Where you're looking to find your provisions in life met, your security in life met, your help in life met. Your prayer life is an indicator of who and where you are looking for help. Babbling, long, wordy, repetitive prayers does not move God because it assumes he doesn't know, which is why you're just going on and on and on. In fact, God knows your needs, which is the reason why you can pray with such confidence. Right? That we have confidence to pray because God knows our needs. Now, from verse 9 onwards in your Bibles, notice Jesus tells us how we should pray and what we should pray for. Right? How we should pray, what we should pray for. And I do want to focus only on the first half of verse 9, which is what we're looking at this evening. Two things stand out uh, in verse 9. This is the key, the starting point. Uh, Jesus says this should be the primary focus when you pray. This is how we should be praying. Right Before Jesus tells us what we should be praying for, he says, notice verse 9, he says, pray to the God who is our Father in heaven. See there? This, then, is how you should pray our Father in heaven. Right? That's the first thing. So here's the first thing. He says, pray to the God who is our Father. Now, notice Jesus does not say, pray to the God who is our judge. Uh, Pray to the God who is our redeemer, our king. We do do that. But he says, pray firstly to the God who is our Father. Uh, One of the things we often forget is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the death of Jesus secures for us not just a right relationship with God who is our judge, 
uh, and God who is our king. But the gospel, the death of Jesus, brings us into a relationship with God as our father, as your father. And so this is very, very important to understand because I think we often forget this. The gospel secures not just a right relationship with God, the God who is great above all, the God who is glorious above all, right? We all know this is how it works, right? What is the problem with our relationship with God? Well, the problem with our relationship with God is that our sin cuts us off from God in his greatness. He is great. We are not. That's why we fall short. And the reality in life, and this is how it works, the reality in life is that the greater someone is, the more distant they are. That's true, right? The less accessible uh, we are in terms of coming into their presence and knowing them personally. And there are only two ways to access greatness. There are only two ways to come into the presence of greatness. You either have to pay to meet them, or you have to be great enough to be welcome into their circle. Right? That's the only two ways to access greatness. Let me give you an example. This is the reason why uh, people always pay to meet and greet their rock stars. It's not free. You always pay to gain an audience with greatness. I, I don't know whether you've done it, but I have friends who have paid, right? who have actually paid money so they can have a meet and greet with Tay-Tay right? or, or with uh, BTS or G-Dragon. You pay more and then you can have a backstage meet and greet. You pay to access greatness. That's one way to do it. The other way is you have to be a rock star yourself to be welcome into their circle, right? That's how it works. Uh, you, you notice how celebrities only hang with celebrities, right? The rich and powerful only move in rich and powerful circles. And so in life, there's only two ways for us to access greatness. Personally, you either have to pay to meet them or you have to be great enough to be welcome into their circle, that's why the greater the celebrity or the greater the rock star, the greater your heroes, the less accessible they are. And that's the reason in culture and society there is an A list, there is a B list, and then there's a no list for everyone else in culture and society, right? When it comes to the rich and the beautiful and the powerful, it's because the greater someone is, the more distance they are, the less accessible. Now, I want to say to you, the same holds true, isn't it, when it comes to God in his greatness, you and I, we cannot even personally get close to those we consider great, our heroes in society and culture. Well, that's the reason why to think we can actually know God personally in his greatness is actually quite foolish. The creator does not owe us an audience or a place in his presence. And, and the great myth that's perpetuated in culture and society uh, in the <laughs> by that great Aussie icon Mick Dundee, um, in his movie, he actually says, and a lot of people in culture and society believe this, he says, you know God and Jesus and all them apostles, they were fishermen, just like me. Yeah, straight to heaven for Mick Dundee because they were fishermen, I'm a fisherman, me and God, we'll be mates. Okay? That's how society and culture thinks. But that's a myth. It, you know, it's actually like me saying, you know Tay-Tay and Ed Sheeran? They're all guitar players. Just like me, I play guitar too. Yeah, I'd be in with them, me and Tay-Tay and Ed Sheeran. We'd be mates. Now, you know that's a nonsense, right? Why? Because greatness separates us. Job, in the Bible, right, in the presence of his creator, he says, I am an ant. I'm a grain of sand, a piece of cosmic dust in the universe. But not just that. I don't just fall short. I'm also an enemy because I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
It's not God I worship. It's not the giver. It's not the creator of the gifts I enjoy. I worship his gifts. I love stuff more than I love him. And this is the reason why it's a truth we need to grasp. Me and God, we're not mates. We're not friends. Our relationship is broken. I'm an enemy. And this is the reason why the gospel is good news. The reason why Jesus died and was crushed for our sins, he didn't just die to pay for our rejection of God. He didn't just die to secure a right relationship with God, our judge and our creator. Jesus died to secure for you a fatherly relationship with your creator. Did you hear that? Jesus died to secure for you a fatherly relationship with your creator. And, and this, this is the difference between Christianity and religion. Religion says you must work so that God will accept you. Religion actually says uh, you must be more moral so God will welcome you. Religion says keep the commandments and God will receive you. Christianity says Jesus paid for it with his life so that you might know God as your father. Not just a right relationship with God, but a fatherly relationship with God. And I want you to understand this very, very important distinction. There is a huge difference between having a right relationship and a fatherly relationship. Because, you know, having a right relationship speaks of justice met, where things were not right between two people, right? You are not right. And so Jesus dies, and he establishes a right relationship. And that's adjusting. He establishes the relationship on the basis of justice. But the other relationship speaks of a loving and secure relationship between a father and his son, a father and his daughter. That's the reason why Jesus says, think with me, many of you know this verse, John 14, 7, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you hear that? The death of Jesus secures not just God in his greatness, but God as our Father. That's the reason why when Paul speaks of the gospel, the work of Jesus uh, in Ephesians, how does he describe uh, the work of Jesus saving us? He describes it in terms of adoption. Made sons and daughters adopted into his family. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. You were an orphan. And God loved you and adopted you to make you a son and daughter. Uh, Which means that you were saved to be a son in the Father's house. You were saved to be a daughter in the Father's house. And so the saving work of Jesus doesn't just end at the cross in terms of making you right with God. Right? There's a flip side to it. It leads to adoption into his family. It leads into adoption in his family. And our problem, and the reason why many of us, we struggle to feel God's love. The reason why many of us have no sense of God's personal love in our lives, why many of us doubt God's commitment to us, why we don't believe God actually cares and knows what's happening in our lives, is because our understanding of the love of God stops at the cross. We only relate to God in terms of God as our judge, getting right with God, which is very, very cold. The scripture tells us there is more, and it's found in the word adoption. Because he saved you to make you a son or daughter where he becomes your father. And so as you pray, remember, you're not just in the presence of greatness. You're not just in the presence of a king. 
You're also in the presence of a father, your father who loves you dearly. That's why Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Know who it is you're speaking to, running to, uh, seeking, looking to. He says, our father. Now, not just any father, but the one who loves you dearly and, and the one whose love has been demonstrated in the cost of actually adopting you. He paid to make you his. God actually, God your father, exchanged one son for another to bring you home. God your father gave up his son to be slaughtered so that he could bring another son and daughter home to bring you home. You know, that's why in the Old Testament, um, in the Old Testament, God is described as God of the fatherless. Israel is my son, right? The relationship to the people of God are described in terms of the fatherhood of God. And so salvation in the Bible is not just a legal exchange, but a relational exchange. Did you hear that? Those of you who hopefully have caught some of the things I've said, you need to understand this theologically. Salvation is not just a legal exchange, but also a relational exchange. Declared right and made a son and daughter in the father's home. God is both judge whose justice must be appeased, but he is also a father who longs for lost sons and daughters, and through Jesus brings them home. Now, the great tragedy is that most of us, we don't pray like that. We don't come, and we certainly don't relate to to God as our father. And the reason why we don't do that is because most of us have never had the kind of relationship with our earthly fathers we wish we had. Uh, You might not have a great dad, or maybe you don't have a strong relationship with your dad, but it's not impossible to imagine what a good father is like, because we can all do it, right? We can imagine what the ideal father is like. It's not impossible to imagine the kind of dad you wish you had, because we can all do it. Some of you here will be dads one day, Uh, Chong is a dad, but, you know, some of you will be dads one day, and, you know, I suspect, you know, when you think of what it it will mean to be a dad, you've looked at your own fathers, and you've said, you know, this is what you would have done differently, and, you know, that's what you you will try to be, you will try to be different based on what you've experienced of fatherhood in your own family. So it's not impossible to imagine what a good father is like. We can all do that. And so often our view of fatherhood comes from our personal experiences of our earthly fathers. Some of you, I suspect, you have had absent fathers in your life. Dad was never there for you, maybe, in your time of need. Maybe you've had a distant dad. Some of you had controlling dads. You live your life always under the shadow of his expectations, his control. Uh, Some of you have maybe had angry, very physically abusive dads. Uh, Some of you maybe have had dads who have never told you they loved you. Never a kind word. And so all your life, you felt as if you've always had to earn their approval. Some of you who have dads maybe who have physically abused you. Some of you have fathers who have broken promises and disappointed you again and again and again. Some of you maybe have had dads who have exploited you sexually and you're repulsed when you think of your dad. Some of you, maybe you've had fathers who've never protected you, never modeled for you, and never shared with you how much they've loved you. Now, I want to say to you this evening, 
If that's your experience of your father, can I say to you, God is the father your earthly father should have been. God is the father your earthly father should have been. And for some of you, it's important for you to know this, today I want you to know God is the father you never had. Do you hear that? Today I want you to know that God is the father you never had. Because he'll never fail you, he'll never abuse you, he'll never hurt you, he'll never break his promises to you, he'll never abandon you, he'll always be there for you, he will always accept you, he will always protect you, And he has always loved you, and he will always love you. That's why, you know, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Interesting, when you read uh, the book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, uh, in that portion of chapter 3, John breaks out in praise, and he says, How great is the Father's love? Why does he praise the greatness of the Father's love? And he says it. How great is the Father's love? Because he has made us his sons and daughters. Now, I do know many of you here that some of you, you have had the privilege of having great earthly fathers. And, you know, maybe you've had a great relationship with your dad. He was always there for you. He kept his promises, never disappointed you. He modeled for you love. Uh, He walked with you in your pain. He protected you as you grew up. Now, if you have had that experience of a dad, today can I say to you, God, your heavenly father, is like that but magnified in a far greater way, in an infinite way. Some of you will be dads one day. Some of you are married, so maybe you'll be dads in the next year or two. Can I say to you that when you become a dad, or if you are a dad, your children's understanding of the fatherhood of God, how they see and approach God, is actually going to be shaped by your fatherhood. And the extent to which you are a true reflection of the fatherhood of God, that is what you will impart to your children in the way they relate to God, their father. And so it's worth asking, isn't it? You know, even if you're single, even if you're married, even if you're a dad like Chong, you know, it's worth asking, if you were to be a father one day, what kind of father would you be? It's worth asking, isn't it? What kind of father would you be? So here's how we should pray. We should pray remembering that God is our father, And that we are loved greatly. We should pray seeking refuge in someone who loves us, who will never abandon us. And I tell you, that should be great encouragement for us when we pray. Because it's meant to foster confidence in our prayers as we come to him frequently, without fear, without worry. Because as our father, he desires and he wants to listen to us. Um, I shared this in the morning. Uh, There are times at work when I actually never want to be disturbed. And when I don't want to be disturbed, I actually don't take calls. I'll say to Phoebe, uh, our church administrator, look, uh, if anyone calls through the church line, just tell them I'm not taking any calls today. Take a message and I'll call them back. Uh, and then, you know, and then I'll, I'll look at my phone. Uh, and I, if I decide I'm not taking calls, I'll look at my mobile and I'll see who's calling through. Jaden Liang. Oh, I'm not taking that one. Um, but then if it's my son or my daughter, I'll take it. And I'll tell you why. Because ever since the kids were small, uh, from the time they had their mobile phones when they went to school, uh, not primary school, year seven, uh, I've always said to them, if you call, daddy will always pick up. Doesn't matter what's happening in a meeting, daddy will still pick up. The only time he won't pick up is if he's preaching a sermon, right? Because I assume if you call me, it's an emergency, okay? Uh, unfortunately, you know, they're, they're young adults now, and, and one of the two, you know, tends to abuse that privilege. You know, I'll be in a meeting at work, 
uh, you know, like a staff meeting, and then you know, the, the phone will, will like, I'll see it buzz, I'll look at it, I'll go, oh, must be an emergency. And then I'll say, excuse me, guys, very important. And I'll, I'll go take the call, and then a voice will say, hey, Dad, are you busy? And I go, yeah, of course I am. What's the emergency? And then she'll say, hey, there's, uh, there's Krispy Kreme specials you think you can pick up on the way home. And I'll be like, that's an, uh, that's an abuse, right, of, of like, that's total abuse. But, but, you see, as a dad, I will always pick up. And not for you guys, right? If I'm too busy, I'll go and call you back later. But with my son and my daughter, they call, I pick up. That's how it works. I want to say to you, God is like that. How much more God, your father? And he's even more eager to hear from you. He's always available. He loves you dearly, more than you can ever imagine. And you always have access to him. And he's wanting to hear from you. That's what the gospel's made available. God, our Father. Okay? But the, there's a second thing. Notice what Jesus says. Learn to pray to God who is in heaven. You see there? Jesus says we must remember not just who it is we pray to, not just our Father, but our Father who is in heaven. He's not just our Father, but our Father in heaven. And, and it's not a statement uh, of geography. It's not like Jesus is saying, you know, pray to God who is in heaven, who is geographically located elsewhere or who is distant. No, no, no. It's actually a statement of God's power, God's rule, God's control overall because heaven is the highest possible throne one can sit on. The psalmist reminds us, Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Why does he laugh? Because he sits enthroned in heaven. He rules overall. To oppose him is foolish. Psalm 14 verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. In other words, God sees everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight because he rules from heaven. His throne is above all. Now, lots of other Psalms there uh, for you to have a look at. But effectively, Jesus is saying, there's no one greater or higher or more powerful you can turn to who is able to hear and answer. It's generally true, isn't it? We only turn to those we think have the power to help us, who can meet our needs. That's the reason why, if you need help, right? Uh, I, I was never good at maths, but I assume many of you in this room are good at three- and four-unit maths. Matt Chan, I was told, was a tutor when he finished uh, high school. That means he must have done really well at maths, right? Lu I know Lucy Han. Wow, her name is still up on some of the tutoring schools in terms of the, the posters down here in Burwood, right? And so, so I know, like, you know, if, if you had a kid in year 11, year 12, or, or you felt that when you were 11, 12, you needed help, who would you go to? Well, you go to people who've got a track record because you know what they got in the previous year. You go to people who were greater than others in this room who didn't do very well at maths. That's, that's how life works, right? Like, you know, it's like the reason why if you need a major operation, you need a heart operation, it's unlikely you go to any surgeon. You don't go you know, and Google a heart surgeon on the internet and just pick a heart surgeon. No, you pick one that has done hundreds and hundreds of successful open heart surgery. You pick one who has a history of success. This is what I'm trying to say. In life, we always run to and seek out greatness. That's what we do for advice, for our needs, for our security, for love, for companionship. And the greater the one we seek help from, the greater they're able the more able they're able to meet our needs. And so in life, we're always looking up. We're scrambling upward, looking for refuge and security and comfort and companionship and love and significance. And I want to say to you, the problem is that we never look high enough. We stop short because we run instead, not to our Father in heaven, we look 
and we pray earthwards. In other words, our prayers are earthbound. We look for answers in our work on earth, our relationships on earth, our careers on earth, our money on earth, our homes on earth, our possessions on earth. That's where we look and that's where our prayers are directed in life. We never rise or look any higher, which is no wonder uh, we, our lives are just filled with disappointment, filled with anxiety, filled with worry, always dissatisfied and fearful. We settle for lower thrones instead of our Father's higher throne. We sit at the bottom rather than look upwards. And so a prayer, if you've never re- realized this, is actually truly a reflection of what your heart considers great in your life, the throne, as it were, that you run to, to find your refuge and comfort and security and provision. Prayer tells you the orientation of your life. That's the reason why we read, Jesus says, pray our Father in heaven. Because God is not just a Father who loves you, but a Father who holds the highest place of rule and power and authority. Remember that today as you pray. Your Father owns it all. There is, no, there is no circumstance in your life he's not in control over. There is nothing in your life that he's not aware of and is in control over. That's the reason why you can approach him with such confidence. That's the reason why Jesus says this is how we should pray. Looking to God who is your Father in heaven. As you bring your cares and your needs, as you bring your troubles, he says, remember, he's your Father and he is in heaven. He rules over all. Right? That's how it's actually meant to work. Let me draw two points of application at the end. Have a look with me in your outlines. I want to say that how you see and understand God actually shapes your prayer life. Okay? Uh, or lack of prayer in your life. How you see and understand God either positively shapes your prayer life or, it's, or lack of. That's why in teaching us to pray, Jesus starts with our Father in heaven. So two things to take away. Here's number one. Your prayer life indicates where you think you're going to find your refuge in life and who is supremely great in your life, the throne you run to or what you've made your throne in life. If God was not committed to you and if he was not supremely great and bigger than your circumstances, you wouldn't turn to him. Yeah, true, right? If I didn't believe God was great or I didn't believe God was loving, I wouldn't turn to him. I wouldn't run to him. I wouldn't pray. But if God was committed to you and God was supremely great, and he was in control of your circumstances, and you don't pray, and you don't seek him, and you don't run to him, if you don't do that, I can only assume, right, when prayer is not your lifeline, not your instinctive response, I can only assume the lack of a vibrant prayer life indicates that he's probably not a father to you, or you don't see him as a father. And he's not supremely great. It's not his throne that holds ascendancy in your heart. You know, I look around the room, right? Uh, Ronnie's not here today, but, you know, when Ronnie's around, how do you know that Ronnie is Calvin's daddy? How do you know that? Right? How do you know that? Well, you know, when Calvin, um, you know, when he gets scared, like, you know, when the dog scared him, right? Okay, I remember when the dog scared him here. Um, what happens? He, he, he yells out, he cries out. Where does he look to find comfort? Where does he run? Well, he runs to Ronnie. We saw that. That's where his eyes turn. That's where his feet runs. It says, Ronnie is my daddy, my father. Right? 
It would be a problem if little Calvin ran elsewhere. He cried for someone else. That's the reason why Paul says, you know, the, the evidence of a converted heart is expressed in the newfound direction of our lips and our hearts. Paul actually says that in Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, Paul says, for when you became a Christian, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. The Holy Spirit came and you, and, and you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That is the cry of the heart of the Christian. Because the Christian has realized God is their father. The orientation of the heart changes. Your prayer life indicates who is your father and who holds the throne of ascendancy in your heart. Your, the place of security and refuge and comfort that you now look to. So that's number one. Here's number two. Understanding God is your father and God who is in heaven will actually empower your prayer life. Uh, There's actually no point praying to a God who is all-loving but has no power to act, no power to change, no power to help you. You know, when my daughter's in distress, why does she run to me? Why does she call on me? It's because she thinks I can protect her. I can give her relief. I can overcome the things that she's afraid of, right? A few years ago, I was in a place uh, in Tagaytay in the Philippines doing a conference there. Uh, and Tagaytay is actually a place, uh, the conference center is actually located on the, f- on the edges of a, of a giant volcano, a collapsed volcano with a lake in the middle. And uh, I remember looking at this place and I just thought, I said, oh, you know, the, it's, it's a volcano that's collapsed. And so I said, Look, um, like this Lake Tal, I said, you know, what sort of volcano is it? Is it like dormant? Like, I assume it is, right? And they said to me, no, 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 it's actually listed as inactive. And I said, well, what does that mean? listed as inactive. And they said, don't worry, Eugene. we're very safe, right? All good. It's not dormant. It's inactive. And it was last active in 1979. And I thought, oh, last active in 1979. Well, that's not good news because those of you who do your stats will know that the longer it's inactive, it means it's likely to blow up. Uh, and they said, no, nah, don't worry, you should. All fine. Well, we've been here many times, this conference center. It's all good. Uh, what's really interesting that was that in COVID, right, in 2020, um, um, the, the volcano in Tagaytay did explode. It could actually be heard like 260 kilometers from like the city of Manila, like dusted the whole place, right? And so I'm like, in the event of an earthquake, if Ashley were there, where would she run? She would run to me. Could I save her? Of course not. As much as I love her, I don't have the power to save her. But to know God as Father who loves you, not just loves you, but has the power to save has the power to meet your need, has the power to deal with your circumstances and give you the strength to deal with that, well, that gives you confidence, doesn't it? To know God as Father alone who loves you does not empower your prayer life unless you also know him as God who is your Father in heaven. That's why Jesus says when you pray, learn to pray our Father in heaven. Love without greatness means he cannot answer your needs. He has no ability to deliver. What good is it if I love you but I have no power to save you. God is your Father in heaven. But I also want you to notice, greatness and power without love is also not helpful. In fact, people who are supremely great and powerful tend not to be inclined to answer because the great and powerful don't have time for lesser beings, for small fish, for the no-listers in life. That's the reason why if you rang Warren Buffett, his net worth is 60 billion, you never get to speak to him, you never get to meet him. In 2011, Someone paid $5.3 million to have two meals with him, to hear his, you know, his thoughts on business, to pick his brains. 
That's the measure of his greatness. People pay to gain access to him. 2018, someone paid 610,000 US dollars to have coffee with Tim Cook, head of Apple, right? If you approach Tim Cook and you ask, you're like, oh, can I have coffee with you? Unless you were worth anything or had anything to offer, it never happened. To gain an audience with Tim Cook, you pay. Warren Buffett, you pay. But it would be very different, isn't it, if you were a son or daughter in their home? Because I can tell you this, if you were a son or daughter, you want to have dinner with dad? Yeah, sure, why not? My calendar's free, let's have dinner. You're a son, you're a daughter. So power without a loving relationship is not very helpful because you can't access that power. It's not available to you. But the reverse is also true. Love without power, fatherhood without greatness is also unhelpful because he can't deliver. He can't provide. Jesus says, God is your father in heaven. And so that's how we should pray. We must know who it is we're running to, speaking to, looking to, knowing him as your father in heaven is what will encourage and empower your approach to prayer. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you that you are not just our creator and judge. We thank you that you are our Father in heaven. We thank you because you love us deeply. You exchange the life of your only Son so that we might be welcome as your sons and daughters. So we thank you that we are deeply and personally loved. But we also thank you that you are a father whose rule is in heaven. Nothing in our lives escapes you. And so we thank you we can bring our cares, our concerns, our worries, our fears. We can come and lay them before you, knowing that you care about those things and that you have the power to actually deal with those things in our lives. Our Father in heaven, we pray and we ask that you might hold the place of love and ascendancy in our hearts so that we might always pray as Jesus taught us, our Father who is in heaven. Amen.